When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hey, how you doing? My name is Roy Wood Jr. And this is a special edition of Beyond the Scenes live from Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. Audience, how are you all doing? A big yeehaw to you. If you don't know, we are the podcast that takes segments and topics that we've discussed on The Daily Show, and we dig into those topics a little bit deeper. Like, this this is what this podcast is about. See, I like barbecues. We're going to explain this podcast like barbecue, okay? This this podcast is like that white piece of bread under the ribs <laughs> that's soaked in the sauce. You know, you, you came for the ribs. You know, that's Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah, the ribs. But then after you had the ribs, you're like, you know what? That little piece of bread was pretty good, too. That's... Some good-ass bread. So that's what this podcast is. Uh, Today, we're going to be breaking down the topic of what it means to be black in media. Specifically, we're talking about journalists, and we're also talking about correspondents and their role in the newsroom. The newsroom, we all know it's a predominantly white place. And what is it like, even pre-George Floyd and post-George Floyd, and even pre-Trump and post-Trump, in an era where people are already anti-black, but to add anti-media on top of that. Some of the struggles that people deal with in that regard, and also some of the solutions. And I'm very curious when I get to the panel on how they are able to release some of that stress. So with that aside, it is my pleasure for us to meet our panelists today. Our first guest is the moderator of Washington Week on PBS. She is also the Washington correspondent for NBC News. Ladies and gentlemen, Yamish Alcindor. Happy to be here, excited to be here. Oh, thank you. Swing your microphone around, swing your microphone. Just look, there we go, there we go. Can you hear me? Very, we'll, we'll, very we'll excited to be here. We'll pick it up and here. adjust it in a second there. This next brother on the panel, the people listening can't see this amazing leather jacket, but that is definitely <laughs> an amazing Texas jacket right there. They, they don't let you wear that on CBS News when you're anchoring. <laughs> uh, you know him from CBS News and CBS Mornings where he's also a correspondent. Ladies and gentlemen, Vladimir Dutier, please give it up. What up? Hi, everybody. And our last panelist is someone that is now in the correspondent space, and she's been in there in, in some capacities in the past for a lot of various positions all across Washington, all over the aisle. But now you will know her on May 7th with her new show on MSNBC and Peacock. 
It will debut in May. She is Simone D. Sanders. Yeah. Greetings. Happy to be here. Now, before we get into the conversation with the panel about what it means to be black in journalism, like I said, Beyond the Scenes is a show that's derivative of topics that we have already breached on The Daily Show. So let's roll a quick clip of the last time I talked about what it means to be black in media. This clip is from 2016. When you're blacking on TV, people say awesome stuff to you like this. The post-colonial victim I don't get it, sorry. Yeah, no you don't fake Gary Busey, and that ain't even the worst of it. <laughs> Say you're a cocaine dealer, and you kind of look like one a little bit. Uh, he just said that out loud. Most people would have cussed that dude out, but if you're a black journalist, you got to keep your cool. Um, As do you. You look like a cocaine user, so <laughs> yeah, we're I, even. So. <laughs> black journalists constantly have to bite their tongue. They come close to the line, but God bless them, they never cross it. Because if they do, then they'll be labeled an angry black man. You can't be emotional about anything. Black journalists keeping their together is one of the few things moving the conversation on race forward. So I salute the brave men and women of cable news, because best believe, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't be able to hold myself back. I, I'm just tired of the police getting the brunt of everything that's going on inside the inner city of sh Chicago. You people in, who live no, in no, Chicago. You people. <laughs> <laughs> So, with that aside, let's go ahead and get into our conversation now on what it means to be black in journalism and media. Uh, Simone, I want to start with you because, you know, Yamish and Vladimir, I know that you all deal with a lot of that stress, but it's often in a construct where you can't exactly custom people out the way you want to. But Simone... <laughs> Because we've seen you on the various news talk shows, Simone, and you're very, you're very composed. I've never cursed. I'd You've like never to point out. Has the there people. been a time, the though? For the record, I have never cursed. There has, there has, obviously, there have been times where I would like to curse, but I've never cursed because in the back of my head, I'm like, well, I want to come back to work the next day. I do remember very vividly there was a time where someone, I used to be a commentator on CNN. I was a political commentator. Um, and I've worked in all various spaces and places in the news, but at that time I was a political commentator after I worked for uh, Senator Bernie Sanders in 2016 as his press secretary when he ran for president. That's why I met Yamiche. She was yeah. on the campaign trail. Yamiche was on the Bernie beat. My phone is, is filled with baby Simone pictures, by the way, <laughs> just so you know. I have a lot of pictures of Simone standing next to Bernie Sanders. Here we go. Traveled all over the country <laughs> together with this one. And I'm on this panel on CNN. It was post-Charlottesville. And we're talking about, you know, in the Trump era, you talked about things like white supremacy every day and you know, racism, and you argued about whether it was real, which is kind of insane given what we have all witnessed and seen in our televisions, CC January 6th. And post-Charlottesville, we were having a conversation about the people who had gotten the permit to have the neo-Nazi rally march, because you got to get a permit to do that. And the gentleman that I was on with, former Attorney General of um, uh, Virginia, Ken Cuccinelli, he told, me to, he told me to shut up. He said, Simone, you just shut up for a minute and let me talk. And I was like, and then uh, Chris Cuomo was on in the morning at that time. And I remember Chris saying, oh, now, Ken, we don't talk to people like that. And I was like, he sure doesn't talk to me like that. No, he doesn't. You can <laughs> shut up. Like, you're trying to excuse white supremacy on this program. And I will not stand by and let it happen. And he's like, well, how do you get them to stop talking? I'm like, them, they, I'm right here, Ken. That was an excuse. 
Look at the and now look at even dead. how they got the permit. And can I finish, Simone? Will you just shut up for a minute and let me finish? Pardon me, sir. You Ken, don't get to tell America. me to shut up on national television. Hold on. I'm Under no circumstances do you get to speak to me in that matter. You should exhibit some decorum. Can stay civil without you. Hold on, guys. Both of you stop for a second. Simone, Ken, Simone, and under no circumstances. Ken and Simone, hold on a second. You need a reset. You need a reset. It was crazy. It was crazy. It was so crazy. So that was the moment where I, I am glad that no curse words came out of my mouth because that is not okay for morning television. It's not okay for television, period. But it was insane. What's the name of your book that you just wrote? The book was No, You Shut Up. <laughs> Speaking truth to power and reclaiming America. <laughs> then took his line and flipped him lemons in the lemonade. Now, Yamish, you have been, you know covering Washington for quite a while. And you have had some things said to you, you know, we can just start, let's just start with Trump. And in the thick of just asking very valid questions, very basic rudimentary level reporter to leader of the free world questions. And you've been calling, I want to get this right. And I'm quoting them. You've been called by the president, then president, Racist, nasty, untruthful, and you also told to not be threatening. How do you keep your composure in those moments when you are having nasty interactions, not just with Trump, but with anyone within the administration that is trying to shoo you away or dismiss questions that represent the valid concerns of the public, how do you keep your composure? Because that composure is an important ingredient in being able to do your job every day. Um, there are a couple ways that I, that I deal with that. And I, I think there are two big ways. The first is that I wanna keep my job. And I think that as a black woman, you get this muscle that you have learned to use over and over again because people say crazy things to you all your life. So but long before Trump called me nasty, someone told me I wasn't pretty enough to be on TV. An editor told me I wasn't smart enough to be in their newsroom. I didn't look confident enough to be a reporter. Black people everywhere walking around do all sorts of things to make sure that they survive interactions with the police, that they survive interactions with their, with their supervisors, that they survive interactions at the hospital. Um, so I think, Honestly, when I think about sort of how I was able to keep my composure, it's that as a black woman, I had used that muscle so many times. Now, I will also say that my mother is a hot-blooded Haitian lady, and she was like, whose daughter are you? Like, I don't understand how Trump is screaming at you and you're coming back and being like, sir, do we have enough tests for COVID or not? Um, but the second part of that question is that when I think about March 2020, people were scared and I could feel it in my bones that we were a country who needed answers. We needed to know if our grandmother got sick, was she gonna have a ventilator? I wanted to know if their states needed more masks, were we actually able to provide them that? I was having family members call me up who were getting fired from dry cleaners, makeup artists who didn't have jobs, um, my mother who was working in the school systems, she was retired now, but I was thinking about all of those people and thinking they're watching TV and like, while it might be funny to see kind of this caricature of a president screaming at people, in reality, people were like, okay, but are we like, apart from all this craziness, are you ready or not? And that was like a question that I kept on asking and I wanted to keep asking because I think that we as a nation needed answers. So I think it's that double, it's the, it's the double consciousness that Du Bois always talked about. It's one having sort of the real responsibility of a journalist in my mind, but also just being black and really realizing that I know how to survive 
crazy, frankly, crazy people screaming at me and especially crazy, powerful men screaming at me. I'm like, it's, it's one of those things you just go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You've been disrespected <laughs> for so long that that's just some new disrespect. Vladimir, when you got into journalism, were you aware at the time, you know, how much backlash there would be with where we are now in media and the role that your race plays into being able to either cover or not cover a story or dealing with the with the bullshit in the newsroom? Um, yeah, because for me, what Yamish described is as a muscle for me, I've always equated it to uh, I absorb body blows and I've always likened myself to Muhammad Ali uh, facing George Foreman. And, and Ali is, is getting those blows. He's getting punched and everybody's saying he's going to go down, he's going to go down. But you know, Ali used to do that thing where he would just go, not going to get me, not going to get me. He would shake his head, right? And that has been my existence, Yamish, yours, Roy, your father's, yours. That's been our existence for since we first came here. And I think that the, what you're seeing, what you heard from Yamish and, and Simone was high profile for millions of people watching CNN, right? With CNN, yeah. Um, and for Yamish, the president of the United States. But what that was indicative of is what happens in newsrooms and in boardrooms all across America every single day. From the day, I remember once, I did a story um, uh, in the wake of the terrorist attacks in France in, in 2015. Um, I'd done a story, a series of stories on the uh, surrounding neighborhoods in Paris where most of the young people um, were mostly from, from Africa, from West Africa. And I came back and I was talking to somebody in the newsroom and he said to me, oh man, that was really powerful reporting that you did. I gotta think, man, you know, those people, the, the Muslims that live in some of those neighborhoods, they're like the N-words of France. And I was like, did he just write? And, and he said it so casually, it just came off his lips, like, you know, and I was like, well, no, not really. And all right, I gotta go. And, you know, and I, you know, my head, as I walked away, I thought to myself, isn't that, isn't that the time when you go to somebody and you go, what'd you say to me? Like, you step up to them and you say something. But I just remember thinking to myself, like, this is so par for the course. I'm not, I'm kind of phased, but I'm not that phased. Or when another person, I don't have any hair, if you can't tell, right? And I tell my mom, it's by choice. But, but this one dude in the newsroom was like, hey, Vlad, what's up? And he, like, must my hair, like, as... Like, like patting me on the head. <laughs> and I was like, I, I'm a 50-year-old man. <laughs> and, you know, and this person just like manhandled me in a way that I haven't been like manhandled ever, not even by my father. I don't think I ever did that, you know? And I didn't, I just remember just being kind of shocked that he did it, but also having sort of no recourse because that's just kind of the way it is. These little microaggressions that happen over time. And, and I knew them because I came from a different industry. I spent 20 years in global finance before I became a reporter. And so it, I witnessed it there too. So it wasn't new for me. And as Yamish said, as Simone indicated, I, you know, it's just one of those things that you know, sort of grin and bear it. I also think part of it is because my parents, like Yamish's, are immigrants. Um, and if I came home from school one day and I said, you know, I could use the N-word on me. My, my mom would say so. Like, just get good grades, because he'll be a custodian, and you'll be a doctor, or you'll be a lawyer, you know? And like, they, they I think sometimes immigrants have these blinders on, on either side that say, 
yeah, it's, it sucks that you got called the N-word or it sucks that you're being bullied because you dress in black all the time. Um, but, but the reality is, look what we came from to give you this life and you can grin and bear it if we had to grin and bear what we went through to get you here. When did you all realize that you were black in media and not just in media? Because like, I know that we have this responsibility as black people to focus on issues that affect our people because we go back to those communities and we, we got neighbors and home homeboys from high school and people you kick it with and they're going through real stuff. Is there, when did you first have that realization? And also, like the bigger part of it, are y'all ever concerned about being labeled like only focusing on the black stuff? Why are you always pitching the black stuff? Like, are you ever afraid of that stigma of being the race reporter? I'm not. And I say that because I think, I, I one, I really love black people. So, and I was raised by Haitian immigrants who really taught me to love the history of black people. Haiti being, you know, the first country in the Western Hemisphere where enslaved people wrestled their freedom from white masters, kicked them out of the country. We've been, we've been having all sorts of issues after that. But the pride that you get from growing up Haitian, for me, um, has made it so that I'm unequivocally invested in telling stories about immigrants and black people, while also making sure that I'm gonna have to tell stories about Ukraine and China and all the other stuff. Um, I had some well-meaning mentors, well-meaning people, um, black people who told me, you know, be very careful about telling too many stories about black people because you'll be pigeonholed because they had their experiences. Sometimes they were the first black reporter at the New York Times or other places where they could not do anything but tell stories about black people. I'm lucky that while I've had some interactions with editors who say, you know, you're, you need to be really careful. I've had a lot of editors who say, no, we understand that you have an expertise and you should do that. Um, I think about Trayvon Martin. So I was in my 20s when Trayvon got killed um, and I was in a newsroom at, at the US, at USA Today and we were having this national conversation about whether or not Trayvon was a troublemaker, was he a bad kid? And I sort of was like, well, one, I grew up in Miami. I, went, I grew up literally across the street from one of his high schools. My cousins went to school with him and I was like a 17 year old who smokes weed, who has gold teeth, who likes MMA, is every 17 year old in Miami. There's nothing, nothing at all different about this kid than the person that you're standing, that's standing in your newsroom right now. And I was very, very vocal about that. And I had editors, I will say some of them white men who had my back, who said, you nope, know, she's smart and she's accurate and she's gonna do this. So I think for me, um, I've never really shied away from it. And I think, you know, your last question or one of your questions about sort of when did you realize you were black in media? I'll say, I mean, I, I always knew I was black and I always sort of knew that, right? Like I always feel like I knew going into the industry because I, I got into, into journalism because of the story of Emmett Till. So I mean that in that I knew exactly why I wanted to get into media was, was tied to civil rights. But when Ferguson happened and cities were on fire and I was able to walk around and tell stories in a way that a lot of people couldn't because they didn't, people didn't see them to have credibility in the community because people were talking about looters and I was getting walked to my car while people were trying to steal Grey Goose. They were like, hey lady, you, you need to walk. And I'm like, yes, please. Walk me to my car, like, like you quote unquote looter, help me out. Uh, like, like I, I just was like, oh yeah, I'm, being black in media is good. It, this is all right. This is good. I can cover a protest. I can, I will go to a riot all by myself and be fine. Yeah, like Simone, like even with your MSNBC show, as you start to shape what the conversations are that you focus on week to week, does that sit in the back of your mind of? 
where does race play a role in the things that I'm passionate about or opinions be damned about what you think about the types of stuff that I want to talk about? You know, when I, I came to the world of media via politics, and I remember my first like big political job was working for Senator Sanders. I had worked a number of campaigns before that, um, but lot, lot, nobody either had a concept that I had worked anywhere before that. They thought, okay, uh, Bernie Sanders needs black people. He's going to hire this black lady, and hopefully she knows how to do her job. So when I left the campaign and then started to do all these other things, particularly in um, media, there were lots of people, like Yamiche says, that you know, people told her that she, you basically didn't look like a, 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 a correspondent, you didn't look like a reporter. I had agents tell me that I wasn't really palatable enough for cable television. And this was after I had served as somebody's national spokesperson for a presidential campaign where I was on TV almost every day. I had people tell me that um, I didn't sound like what people were used to hearing when they turned on the television. And what that meant is that I didn't sound like a old white man or old white lady, because those were the people on TV at the time. So you didn't like the instinct to code switch didn't Yeah, yeah, flip I was just like, oh, okay, and maybe maybe I was a little too bald, too black or too big. I don't know, I don't know. I've looked like this for a while. So when I started doing, uh, when I started being a commentator, and this plays into the things that I think about now as I'm building my show, um, I had somebody tell me once, uh, a, a black man, who has been in the TV space for a very long time, and he called me up when I first got a contract, and he said, you know, I want you to know something. You are not light-skinned, skinny with long hair. And I said, facts. <laughs> and he said, so because of that, there are just some things that you specifically cannot do and cannot say because whether you like it or not, people will hear it differently and take it differently coming from you. And people feel, whenever I tell that story, people feel different ways about it, but the reality is that it is true. And so I don't approach, I've never approached like TV and I'm not approaching my show like, how can I speak for black people? Because I'm, I'm black every day. You know, I wake up every morning as a black woman, one word. Um, people always say, we, you know, during the, a couple years ago, everybody, we would get on TV and folks would say, why do you always have to talk about race? Why are you trying to make it about race? And the reality is that it is always about race for me. Every time I leave the house, people are making judgments about me, what I think, what I can do, what I know, who I am, what I believe, how much money I have, based on the fact that I am a black woman, one word. They don't, they don't see that I'm, they don't, they don't even get the concept that I'm from Nebraska and grew up going to Catholic school my entire life. Somebody in the crowd was like, what, Nebraska? Yes, there are black people there. Okay, Malcolm X is from Nebraska, y'all. So as I'm putting together the kind of show that I want to do, I want to do, I've been telling the folks at MSNBC, I'm excited to do the news. And people are like, oh, okay. And so one of the execs told me, they said, you know, I did not think you were going to come here saying you want to do the news. I thought you were going to say you want to tell people your story. And I was like, okay, well, I want to do the news because- did you do the head? Yeah, I did the head. <laughs> tell people your story. And I thought that was, I think it's great that I'm surprising people because for so long, so many people that don't look like us sitting here get to have gotten to decide what the news is. The news is, yes, Ukraine, China, what the president said today, where the vice president traveled. The news is also what is happening in media and politics. The news is also this thing that happened in North Omaha, Nebraska, predominantly African-American part of the city. The news is what's happening in Chicago, and it's not just a shooting, okay? The news is how Detroit is emerging as a new culture hub, and uh, fashion houses are going there, and they've got this great opera opening on Malcolm X, okay? Malcolm X is becoming an opera. Like, that is the news, and... I get to decide what the news is because it's my show. Yeah. 
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. So, Vlad, let's talk to that same point about assimilation. There's a book about ESPN and the oral history of the history of that network, and they talk about when Stuart Scott first came to that network and how a lot of people at that network didn't like the way Stuart Scott went about doing sports highlights. Broadcast is very, you know, it's <laughs> it, 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 to me, broadcast is the one medium of journalism that leaves the least amount of space for creative improvisation. And like, it is the last, like, it's the last place where they go, all right, you can do something a little differently. <laughs> Did you ever run into that pressure or were you ever pressured by people to not be the style of journalist that you are now? Not really, and I and I will say first of all, um, just to jump off your last question and wrap it up with this one, I went to Africa. That's how much I realized that I was a black reporter. I raised my hand. Is anybody here Nigerian American or from Nigeria? Yes. Okay. So I, 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 CNN sent me to West Africa to be to Nigeria to Lagos, Nigeria to be their West Africa correspondent, and and. First of all, uh, kudos to them for for recognizing that it was important to have a black person telling stories on the continent, um, which I think is important. Uh, although there are obviously white Africans as well, um, and, and and for me, there was something beautiful about telling stories about humanity, the same stories that we tell here: car crash, you know, a kidnapping, um, an agriculture minister that wants to, you know, um, you know, grow a certain crop in a country and make that a number one export. Like these are the things that in a normal world happen every single day, but in our country, they are tinged with this, um, you know, with the things that we're talking about here. And it was so refreshing. Can I just tell you it was how refreshing it was just to be a reporter and never, in fact, and this goes to your question, one of the things that I, I think has always been, and I've, I'm, I'm very aware of this, um, and I've talked about this with other reporters, black reporters, reporters of color, is that 
even for me, I am sometimes, some of the things that Yamish and Simone are talking about don't affect me. Why? Because I'm a man, number one. And two, because I'm also a light-skinned black man. And that has, a, you know, when you're from a multi-ethnic background, you're in these two different worlds where you are sometimes, like sometimes, probably the reason that that one dude used the N-word around me is because he was, somebody probably went to him afterwards, they were like, did you say that in front? Oh, I didn't know that, <laughs> I didn't realize. I didn't realize that, oh, you know? And so, and even then when he said that, I remember thinking to myself, that, that could be one of the reasons that that happened. Um, and so that is my privilege. That it's my lane of privilege that I have that these two young women don't have. And I recognize that as well. So to the question that you asked, Roy, about you know, having this sort of code switch, Stuart was a, a, a trailblazer for everybody who's on television, like point blank. But, and, and from that, I took that, look, this is who I am. You know, when I uh, joined CBS News, uh, CBS News is the most traditional of the three uh, legacy broadcast um, networks, I think. Um, and certainly it is buttoned up, but I'm not that buttoned up when I'm in the field. When I'm reporting on terrorism, or when, I'm in, when I was in Ferguson, that was my first big story for CNN, uh, for CBS, I thought it was weird to be in the streets, you know, interviewing people protesting every night and in a suit and tie. I was like, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm gonna dress like I would when I'm doing any story that requires you know, me to sort of be in the crowd, be with people, and to not stand apart from them. I don't wanna stand apart. The reason I became a reporter is not to stand apart from people. I don't wanna go into a, a situation, even a dangerous one, with security. I, I wanna be my authentic self, and CBS News has allowed me to, to do that. And so I think that Stuart and people that came before him did sort of open up that door a little bit to allow us to not be like, I, when I first got to, you know, when I first started working in news, people would say to me, when I got into the tracking booth, which is where you actually do your pieces and you're supposed to, you know, they would say, hey, did did you listen to that reporter, you know, who's white, who's from, you know, West Texas? Can you sound like that guy? And I was like, no. Oof. Because, like, first of all, why would you want that? Why would you want me to sound like that person? Why wouldn't you want me to sound like me? And eventually, what you do realize, to be fair, is that in the news business, they're always nervous about anybody that's new when you come into this news business. And they do kind of want you to behave a certain way that they know quote unquote works. And I remember a black producer saying to me, dude, dude, don't worry about it. He's like, you know, you're gonna, they're gonna go in there and they're gonna say, can you please sound like that person? Can you please sound like this person? Can you sound like, and then six months into the job, they're gonna be like to the next guy that comes in, can you sound like Vlad? Cause that's what we want. And that ultimately is what happened, but it wouldn't have happened without people like, like Stuart. Okay, so to your point, Vlad, about having a black producer and being a black reporter, Post George Floyd, right? We are, we are, we know what happened. Every corporation that we love black people. They found diversity to, dollars, honey. They found them. We, <laughs> they found D E and I. We promised to hire all of the blacks that have done everything in this thing. That's some distinguished gentlemen. That's distinguished. These black people come work for us, and we love you. And we want you to know how much we love. Look, we put Black Lives Matter in our window of our building. How much of that? <laughs> <laughs> you know that's how they sound, you mean. <laughs> how much of that corporate kumbaya that was happening in 2020 trickled down to the to your respective newsrooms for real and for positive? Have there been, have you all seen changes in your newsrooms with regards to staffing and the types of stories that you're allowed to cover? 
I will say for CBS News, I'm very proud of CBS. We have, uh, first of all, our, our our vice president of news just became the first black female network news president, Kim Godwin, FAMU. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Every time I'm around FAMU people, I feel like I should have gone to FAMU. <laughs> yeah. uh, Kim Godwin, uh, who's now running a network, and of course, Rashida Jones at MSNBC, but at CBS News specifically, Terry Stewart, who's our executive vice president of news as a black woman, uh, uh, Ingrid Cyprian Matthews, who is in charge of all of news gathering for CBS News, is uh, Afro-Latina. Um, the producer of my show, the C uh, CBS Mornings, Sean Thomas is a black woman. Um, and you've got Gail King on our air. You've got Jerika Duncan. You've got Michelle Miller. Um, you've got me. You've got Jeff Pegasus in Washington. Uh, Ouija Jang covers the White House. I feel like we are one of the most incredibly diverse newsrooms in America. Um, and can it be better? Of course, it can always be better. But there's a cognizant, there's, a, there's an understanding that people like us, like myself, like like Ouija, like Michelle, like Jerika, like Gail, that that we matter and our perspective is integral to the jobs that we do as journalists for CBS News. So I'm very proud of that. I would echo. You know, I'm I'm new to MSNBC. I just uh, I, I became a member of the family in January, and that was through the leadership of Rashida Jones, MSNBC Network president. And Rashida came up through the ranks. You know, she mm. knows how to produce a show. Right. She knows how to line produce. She know how, she's, a, she's an executive now with the perspective of so many various folks in the newsroom and an executive that knows that there are lots of people that watch our network. And because there are a number of different MSNBC viewers, this is a place where you can go and get many things. She's investing in, in streaming and various voices. I mean, Eamon Moyadine has a show. When's the last time you heard somebody named Eamon Moyadine with a show? <laughs> on television and on streaming, okay? Uh, she's found and hired excellent, great talent like myself. Folks like Yamish, okay? Yeah. And Coach Yamish and brought the great Yamish over. She got two uh, jobs. Two jobs. Okay, Yamish got two jobs. <laughs> two <okay>. jobs. <laughs> she hosts the show and is a Washington correspondent. Joy Reid is in primetime. There's a black woman who has a show in primetime that people watch. Uh, Tiffany Cross has Tiff a show Cross, now yeah. on weekends. Like Jonathan Capehart hosts a show, the Sunday show on Sundays. Rashida Jones did that. And so I would just say that I think, um, MS and I'm, let's not forget, I mean, on NBC News, it's Lester Holt that people are watching at night when they're watching their nightly news channel. So I agree with Vlad. It can always be better, but there have been intentional, people have to be intentional about seeing and hearing people both in front of and behind the camera. And uh, I think that's why I'm so excited to be a part of MSNBC and the NBC Universal family because I feel and see that every day. Like there is, there are resources being put into talent to make sure that they are successful. Does it feel like lip service at all, you know, where you are on your side? It seems like, like speak to the importance, I guess, of not just black people in front of the camera, but black people in the leadership and decision-making positions that are able to put all of those names that she aforementioned in places where they can flourish. I mean, I think it, it, diversity has to be not just getting um, people on the entry level, it has to be promoting people, it has to be paying people right. Um, and I think that we have seen those changes. And I think honestly, they started happening after President Obama was elected. After President Obama was elected, 
Almost every network said, wait, where's the black correspondent to cover the black president at the White House? I was not there, but I can talk to, I talked to older black reporters and a lot of people got to come up off of Obama. <laughs> so I think that if you really think about it, um, that's, that really started because people were like, oh wait, how do we cover this guy? Like Barack Hussein Obama, where, where are the black people? <laughs> and, and that's just sort of what happened. <laughs> They, the meeting, they had a meeting, and they were just like, listen, we got to get a black one because he's black. <laughs> and he'll talk to the black ones, and we'll get better questions answered. I mean, yes, I think that's exactly what happened. You're making, making an important point, though. Because, I, was, I mean, you're making an important point. I used to work at the White House. I used to work for the vice president. I was her spokesperson. And I can tell you that not only at the White House, but on these campaigns, post President Obama, it's like, oh, we need to do a meeting with the black press. We need to, when are, what are we doing on black press? Mm. And I, it was, it was so important to me that folks are not talking, you're talking about reporters who are also black. Like when you're calling, Jimmy, you're not calling the black press. You are calling a reporter who is also black. Yeah, and yeah. I, I will say, I think the thing that makes me a little nervous is that we are living in a country where we had this inflection point after George Floyd and we had this quote unquote, you were talking about sort of the, the crazy conversations that we were having during Trump. We had those crazy post-racial society mm -hmm. conversations where I was like, I'm sorry, I walked down the street and I'm still black. What post-racial society can we ever even, like why is that even a phrase that was ever even invented? Um, so I think that I'm a little worried about whether or not we just have more inflection points. That's what America does. We free the, we flee enslaved people and then we have reconstruction in KKK. We, George Floyd gets strangled and murdered and we have a conversation about diversity and then critical race theory happens and we're banning books. I'm really kind of still watching sort of what America does, but America historically has always done this thing where we think we're interested in diversity. Then when we really learn about what America yeah, was in 1619, we're like, oh, we don't want to we don't, we don't yeah. watch that. We don't want to learn about that. Yeah. And that's tough. You know, I, I think that um, what's also been interesting to me is we all talked about how our newsrooms are incredibly diverse now. But when I got into the news business, it's still, and I, I spoke to my colleague Michelle Miller about this recently, um, my earliest mentors were white. And that just sort of speaks to how the change has happened, you know, very rapidly in the last, you know, five or six or seven years. Um, my mentor, Anderson Cooper, um, you know, I don't, when I got into the news business, I didn't know any, I'd watched people. I knew I'd watched Ed Bradley. I'd watched Byron Pitts um, and, and people that I admired, uh, Charlene Hunter Galt. Um, but, but I, I didn't really know anybody um, like Anderson who was black, you know? And now of course, you know, plenty of people that have picked up his mantle, the kind of reporting that he does um, and, have, and have run with it. But, 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 you know, he, you know, for me to get my foot in the door, if I'd come across a Kim Godwin then, who knows, right? But but I didn't. I came. But luckily, I came across a guy who was like, "Hey, I think this kid has what it takes," um, and and helped me like launch my career. Um, and I cannot imagine as somebody who admire. I, I mean, I adored Ed Bradley. I wanted to be Ed Bradley or Gordon Parks. Those were my two guys. I wanted to either make films like Gordon Park did or or be like Ed Bradley. And and um, I can't imagine what it was like for Ed to be 
uh, in the newsroom um, in the 1960s and the 1970s when he was the only one. I spoke to Connie Chung about what it was like to be the only Asian woman. Yeah, she, you know, she had some, Connie has some great stories if you ever want, you know, she's writing a book, but I spoke to her about what it was like and she actually had insights uh, because she knew Ed back in the day, back in the early 1970s and the late 1960s when, when she was just, you know, a young reporter. There's a very famous photo. It's of Connie Chung. She's only probably in her 20s and she's covering Watergate. My wife, who's Asian American, has this photo as like her background, her, her wallpaper. It's this photo of all these white men in ties and cigars and cigarettes, and they're all on the phone and they're hustling, they're, they're reporting. It's during the Watergate hearings. And right in the middle of the room is a young Connie Chung, like looking up, like, like, and you, you Google this photo and see if you, you want to know our mood sometimes, <laughs> that is the mood, right? Because it's like you're surrounded by a lot of these people and you're the only one sometimes and that's changing, but that's how you sometimes feel. And uh, I, that's why those, those people that came with, like your dad, Roy, I cannot imagine what it would have been like to try to be the only one and to try to raise your hand and say to a network president or to a, an executive producer, this is the story that I think we should cover and have them say, yeah, it seems like kind of a black thing, like an urban thing, I don't think so. Uh, my father used to tell me that's part of why he always wanted to be out in the field so he wouldn't have to put up with stuff in the newsroom. In the newsroom. He was just like, you know what, just send me to the civil rights rally. I, I, <laughs> just, I'd rather get beat, just let me go. <laughs> Then sit me and deal with y'all. <laughs> I'd rather take a billy club to the head. My, than fa have to deal my father was embedded with black platoons in Vietnam that were dealing with race. He said, "Send me to Vietnam <laughs> on the front lines with a tape record. I would rather what? cover that than be in this room with y'all." Wow. That wow. says everything. I mean, I mean it, it really that says does. it all. Right? We need to put that on a t-shirt. Hmm. I think I think the point that Vlad made is an important one in that that it is not just on black people and people of color that it's going to take intersectional work like white people in newsrooms have to want to and do want to see the value and see the changing landscape and be invested and be a part of that. You know, everybody that works on on my team as I'm building my show at MSNBC is not black. You know, I have, I've had white mentors that gave me opportunities and chances. Uh, Amy Antelis at CNN is the person that, how I first got a contract. And I probably wouldn't be on anybody's radar to have worked on more presidential campaigns, let alone now have a, uh, a show at MSNBC if that white woman over there didn't think that, you know, maybe I was talented. But it was Yvette Miley that also at MSNBC way back when who, a, a, a black woman, who invested. So I think we have to, I think a lot of times folks get into these, um, oh, if it ain't, it, it, all black everything. And, yeah, you know, we love a little all black. We love all black. But the reality is the world that we live in is not all black. And the problem is that all black. If you're going to fix an issue, I think about what Toni Morrison said. Oh, my God. I mean, I love Toni Morrison. I can't believe they're banning her books. I can't even talk about it because mm. um, I think about Toni Morrison and she, she talks about the fact that if, if, if white people in particular, if they can only be tall, if you're kneeling, if someone mm. else is kneeling, then the problem is you, not 
black people. And I think that it has to be, it, it will never be people of color fixing the issues in America. It will always have to be an interracial solution because the problem is interracial. Um, and, and that to me is what makes me nervous, frankly. I think I'm optimistic. Yes, it's great to see all these, these voices and leadership, but I'm still thinking about the fact that we live in America and America always has a way to reinvent racism always has a way to figure out how to just change the rules really? on everybody. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. How, how do y'all deal with the stress of all of this? Like, here's a, here's a quicker question for you, Yamish. You can tell the truth. It's just you and me up here. <laughs> do you read you your Twitter like... mentions? I sometimes read them. I sometimes read them um, because, okay, so there are two things. I am a reporter who is constantly looking for stories, and I've found stories on Twitter before. I've also found people who have given me sort of feedback that I've found to be helpful. Um, I think that Twitter has increasingly, I think, over the pandemic gotten to be, especially because most of my social media is Twitter, has gotten to be a more angry kind of just place where I feel like this everybody is. has PTSD because we've been living through this pandemic that just threw our whole lives up and we're all walking around like we're okay because we zoomed our way through the problem, but everyone's kind of on edge in reality. And I think that that Twitter has become a little bit more or less of a place that I want to be um, in terms of like checking my mentions. I do think if I'm honest, like black Twitter to me, I look at black Twitter and I think, okay, I don't want to be eaten alive. So like, <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm trying to do something that is, that it, that feels credible, but it's also problematic because sometimes black Twitter can be really, really cruel. Sometimes you say something and people come at you and you're like, okay, well that's not really what I, what no I that, wasn't the, that wasn't the intention of what I said. And I've seen other people sort of, of be really, really mean to other people um, in the spirit of, of sort of the black Twitter crowd thinking. I think that that can be, it can be scary, um, frankly. I would say that the way that I deal with stress is that I don't get too high off the love that I get from people um, and I don't get too low off the hate that I get from people. I don't try to let it impact what I think too much because for me, I really am trying to, to deal with the people who I know love me. So for me, what COVID did was really help me understand who I want around me and understand who I trust and who, was, who feels safe. And my husband's stuck in DC, so he couldn't come today, sadly, um, for all sorts of reasons that I won't get into. But my <laughs> husband, um, you know, he, to me, finding love was, was incredible. Um, and having someone to, frankly, be able to vent to, to be able to be loved on, to be able to, to, to talk about your day. He's a journalist too, covering Loudoun County, which of course now is like a crazy county, but that's a county where critical race theory and they're doing all sorts of stuff with transgender rights. And I think that to be able to have someone who really kind of understands storytelling and understands the stresses of journalism has just been sort of incredible to me. And then I think I, I have a lot of friends and a lot of friends from different races, but black women in particular, they show up for me in ways that I just, to this day, I think really give me goosebumps. And I, I think, you know, we're talking about black media, but I have friends that are Wall Street bankers, who are nurses, who are makeup artists, and we all have the same sort of lived experiences, which is that what we think is an issue in media and black people, it's really an issue in America. The microaggressions, the people not, you're being uncomfortable because you don't look the way that, that traditionally people looked, whether you were working at a bank or whether you're in media. The, the thing that, you know, I think it can be really easy to feel personalized where your supervisor tells you something that's wild. And then you talk to your friend who works on Wall Street and you're like, oh, you've been passed over for a promotion three times and now you're, now you're training people who, 
don't know more than you. Oh, okay. Well, this isn't just media. This isn't just sort of one way. It's it's how the country works. And that to me is it's it's why I, maybe I'm the pessimistic kind of sounding one up here, but I I think that's what makes me nervous. <laughs> that's what makes me nervous. I think she's realistic. <laughs> You're realistic. You're pragmatic. Black people are nothing if not pragmatic. Okay? It is understanding the reality of what it is, but still having the ability to hope for what can be. The vice president talks about um, to the ability to see what can be and burdened by what has been. That is, that is the essence of this right here. So then what's your stress relief? Like, what, what do you do after a long day of just dealing with race and all of this craziness and getting talked too crazy, and then you gotta go cover crazy? Because the thing <laughs> with The Daily Show that's frustrating, and I talked to the other correspondents about it, is that to find the joke, you must consume 10 to 15 terrible stories. You have to read all of the, do you read the national paper, you read two local papers, and you find all of the stuff that's divisive, that everybody's arguing about, and somewhere in there is one little nugget of a joke that you, you dusted off. <laughs> And you email it up to Trevor and the producer. They go, that's funny, but we're doing a different direction today. Like, oh, God. <laughs> so, Vlad, Simone, what do you all do to deal with that stress? Like, how do you... I mean, I go to the nail sanity? shop. The people know I love my nails, honey. I go to the <laughs> nail shop. I'll take two, three hours. My fiance tell you, you just won't find me on a random Wednesday. Don't let it be Sunday afternoon. And then I agree with you, Mish. Like, I, I'm getting married this um, summer. Very excited. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. He is fine. And the... I think the pandemic so was are the you, best Simone. thing that <laughs> So are you. So are you. <laughs> I think the pandemic was the best thing that happened to us because it was just a crazy time for me professionally, for both of us actually. And we could unwind. Like when I felt like the people were not being fair to me in my and in, in it whether at work or on the internet, like he I could talk to him about it and he would call balls and strikes. He'd be he could say if it's effed up, it's effed up. Or you know what, you actually need thicker skin and we gonna we could cry in the closet and then let's go. So uh, that is what has been helpful for me. I think for me, you know, you, you said something interesting. Two things, uh, Roy. Um, one, you talked about the death of nuance. And that's where I feel we have, where we've come in the last four or five years, that there's very little nuance in our interactions uh, with each other. And that is what I love most about my job, about my life, about the people that I interact with on a regular basis. And the point that you made about searching for that one little funny nugget that is, you know, how you're going to build out a joke, that's what I do with people. I know that there are people that, you know, that I, I, I'm not uh, unaware that there are terrible people out there. But one of the reasons I became a, a journalist, one of the reasons I gave up a career to start at the very bottom as an intern um, when I was you know, almost 40 years old. I will note Vlad was a very successful Wall Street <laughs> man, okay? <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't like a, a hedge fund guy, but I was doing okay for myself. But you know, I, I, the reason is I, I really, really, really get off on talking to people of all stripes, you know, all traditions and backgrounds, and that brings me immense joy. I, I love interacting with people, I love hearing their stories, I love sharing my stories, I love finding that commonality. That is what drives my journalism, and, and, and what Twitter does is it removes all of that. So that, you know, you say one, like I told you on that call that I, you know, I once, <laughs> you guys will laugh at this, I, um, was once, you know, you know, on TV, as you guys know, sometimes they're like, we gotta go, we gotta go. The producers will get in your ear, we're going to commercial, it's a hard wall. So I was doing a story and I was talking really, really quickly and I said, you know, and then this happened to Tupac Shaker. All right, gotta go. 
all of a sudden, right, this dude right here was like, what? <laughs> That's exactly what happened. All the of a sudden. rapper name who? Yeah, exactly. Twitter got all like crazy. Like my mentions blew up. This dude, like who the hell, like talking Tupac Shakur, Vlad, like even like my own colleagues in the newsroom came up to my office, Vlad. And I was like, guys, I know, it was a mistake. It was like a twist of the tongue. <laughs> and people were like all mad as if I, I somehow, I, you revoking your black card, Vlad, you can't be. Like, I was like, I'm sorry. Like, can we just like, can we not even flub our words without the entire world coming down on you? Because if you sit down and talk to me, you know that I know who Tupac is and I got him on rotation on my Spotify, but like everybody thought like, oh yeah, of course. It's cause he grew up in a white school. Like, <laughs> you know, like, and it was like, I'd, so I, I, I get off on that. That's what relieves my stress. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you, but consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We're going to go now to some questions here from our South by audience uh, before we wrap up here. Here's one. Uh, this is from an anonymous person. Uh, is there an example of a story you pitched that you were passionate about that got shut down? I'm very passionate about um, the plight of sexual and, and domestic violence against women of color in this country. And, uh, and you know, um, when I was first starting out, I, the, we, were coming across, we were coming up to the anniversary of the Central Park jogger, the, the night that she was brutally assaulted in Central Park. Um, and I was still in journalism school, I was still in grad school. And I, I wanted to do this story, and I thought if I could do a really, really good pitch in J school, I can maybe pitch it to CNN, and maybe they would do it as a dot-com story. Because what I decided to do is, rather than look back at Trisha Miley, the, the Solomon uh, Brothers banker who was, who was uh, sexually assaulted, I went and found what other women in New York City that very week also got sexually assaulted brutally, like Trisha Miley. And I found that there were five women who had uh, suffered, one woman was thrown off the, the roof of a building um, in, in New York City. She survived, miraculously. Um, and, and I went and looked for those press clippings. There was not one mention 
on television, of course. And in the, in, only in the New York Times was there in the metro section were there a couple of brief, like, you know, they have those like metro updates. This is what happened in this part of the, in this part of the city. And so I went back and I interviewed people who remembered those incidents, uh, you know, um, in the community. And we went back and we told that story and then we, we took it from Trisha Miley and then we, we said, okay, these five women. And then we started a whole sort of running commentary on the number of missing black women that have you know, gone missing over the last couple of years. And no one knows their, that was the name of the piece, no one knows their name, right? Because nobody knew the names of these women except the loved ones who are still mourning them. And, um, and I did the piece and I was very proud of it. And I, you know, I showed it to some people, you know, uh, um, and and you know, in in the newsroom outside of school, and they were like, "This is a great journalism school piece. This is a great journalism school piece." You know, and I get it. I, I absolutely Ooh. get it. I mean, it's like, first of all, newsrooms will tell you we don't like to do memorial pieces. That's absolutely true. So there is some um, validity to what they were saying. But but the fact that we are still at, at a point where we are often not telling the stories of these victims in the same way that we tell the stories of other victims is something that, you know, I think is, is difficult to, to it's, it's a hurdle. It's a challenge. They shut you down. I know they shut you down. Tell me about the time they shut you down. <laughs> Other I mean, than you, the asked that, you asked that question, and I was like, I'm sure I have a, a running list of, of stories <laughs> that have been shut down. I mean, so many stories have been shut down, especially because I remember when I was first starting out, I wouldn't even put that I spoke Haitian Creole on my resume because I didn't think anyone cared. Every job that I've been to, I've always pitched stories about Haiti, and I've luckily been able to, to always get a couple stories in, but it's always been, oh, wait, there's an earthquake, let's do Haiti now. Or, oh my God, the president was assassinated, now we really care. Or, oh my God, those black immigrants, they're getting whipped on the border, and now we're gonna go. And I think that I've always um, just tried to keep an eye on Haiti in general. Can I just say, I Yamish, but can I just say one thing about that? When I first met Anderson, um, it was, uh, uh, I sat in his office in November of 2009, and we were talking about Haiti, because he, he is long before the earthquake, been a champion for Haiti. And I said to him, yeah, I'd like to pitch some stories on Haiti. He's like, dude, I try all the time. And I, even I can't get them on the air, right? And, right. and this was like two months before the earthquake. So, so I, I bring that up because we sat back, we like both of us like sort of leaned back in our chairs and we're like, yeah, man, like nobody ever wants to do a story on Haiti unless something really horrible happens. And then two months later, the earthquake happened. So sorry to no, cut but you that, off, but, no, that, but, that, but even Anderson Cooper is, could be sitting here and being like, yeah, I can't get Haiti stories on the air. <laughs> I would say Haiti stories are definitely um, top of mind to me when I think about that. I also think stories about sort of um, emerging, emerging political stories surrounding black people. So I remember this story that I wanted to do in 2016 and I was working with another black reporter um, and I don't think it, I'm portraying anything here, which is that we were doing a story about black people not being that excited about Hillary Clinton for a number of reasons. Um, and that story basically never got written. And mm, I was kind of like, hey, we should really write this story. Like we have black donors, there's an issue here. And it just like never got written. Wow. And I think that it's like- crazy and someone wow. else wrote the story. Like Girl, the post ended I mean, up here's the <laughs> like, like don't even get me started. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but after after Hillary lost, I was like, oh, oh my man. God, how did we not know this? And it's like, <laughs> y'all, we've been new that black people 
had some issues wow. with Hillary. Wow. And by the way, some of them were Haitian in Miami, which is a state she needed to win. And Haitians in Miami were looking at her like, what did you do with the, with the aid organization? Your brother's making millions of dollars getting diamonds in yes. Haiti. What are you talking about? So they were just, they were like, you know what? I'm so bitter about that. Okay. I'm just going to stop. So then but. to that point, that, that ties perfectly into another question from another anonymous. And Simone, I want you to start with this one because you've worked with politicians of differing races. Anonymous person asks, what do you think of the way the media covers politicians? Is there a double standard in how they cover black politicians? There is a double standard in how they cover the first woman, the first woman of color, the first black woman of South Asian descent who is the vice president of the United States of America. That's for damn sure. Okay, I spent, I spent the last year of my life blocking and tackling verbally on the phone with people every single day. I used to joke with folks that I had the worst job in the White House because, <laughs> because, and I said I had the worst job, I, I, actually I had the best job in the White House, but I would joke with the reporters that I had the worst job because I can't just, I couldn't just pitch a story. I gotta explain to you why what I am pitching is true. I can't just say, you know what, the vice president is a governing partner to the president. People are like, okay, but how? Tell me how. Like, what does she actually do every day? Were you asking what Mike Pence did every day? That's my question to you. You know, I will never, I will never forget that. Um, so we went to Guatemala when I worked for the vice president. Uh, she did a trip to Guatemala and Mexico. And while she was in Guatemala, she did an interview with Lester Holt. And everyone has seen this interview with Lester Holt. But actually, no, everyone has seen the clip from the interview with Lester Holt. People probably didn't see the actual interview. But there's a moment in the interview where um, Lester is asking the vice president multiple times, what, does she have plans to go to the border? And he asks about seven or eight times. And the eighth time, she says, well, I haven't been to Europe either. So, okay. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, I'm here in Guatemala today I, at some point. You know, I... We are going to the border. We've been to the border. So you, this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, I mean, I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. That is the clip that I you know, when I wake up the next morning, it's the clip that's everywhere. Wasn't a great clip. We come back from the trip, and a week later, reporters are on my phone, and uh, this one reporter from an outlet that I will not name is like, well, we're doing a story about the fallout from the terrible trip. And I say, oh, you mean the fallout from the moment, at the moment in the interview? Because we just have to put it in context. It was a moment in the interview. It wasn't a bad trip. Like, there was a, it was a diplomatic success. So I'm putting my spin on it, because it was a diplomatic success. And this reporter says, he says, you know, so is she going to get media training now? And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, I worked for President Joe Biden for two years on the campaign trail, okay? I answered question after question after question about gaffes and, and uh, Joe Biden and his gaffes, and I pushed back on them. And not one, one point that any of these reporters asked me was that Joe Biden, candidate Joe Biden, going to get media training. Why are you asking <laughs> me, is this black woman who was a twice-elected district attorney, twice-elected attorney general of the largest Department of Justice, only second to the Department of Justice of the United States of America, a former United States senator, and the vice president of the United States of America, get media training? Do you think that's an appropriate question to be asking me? Oof. He was like, well, I mean, I thought it was until we did. It's crazy. It's crazy to me. It is crazy. And I fundamentally believe that 
women, per, women period, but also women of color specifically are covered differently because people are not used to seeing women of color, especially black women in leadership positions. It is just something fundamentally, like it's like a, their mind got to do a shift. It's just like, mm, but what is really happening in there? And it's like, it, it is what I say it is. Like, I'm not lying. What? I mean, what? you just saw that couple, what, less than a week, 10 days ago, uh, people, what was bubbling under the surface? The first black woman to be nominated to Supreme Court of the United States, people were asking, have you seen her law school entrance exams? Crazy. I need to see her middle school transcript. Right. We can't I mean, be. Crazy. What was her LSAT score? Just to be clear, people were also asking, was, was Kamala Harris eligible to be vice president? There was a little birtherism mm -hmm, 2.0 mm -hmm. that bubbled to the surface, and yeah. we just kind of slapped it down real hard. But it was, it was bubbling. It was like, we can have legitimate questions about all sorts of things, but that was a question that was being asked of the vice president of the United States. Was she born in this country? Yeah, she's from Oakland. What? <laughs> Okay, so let's end on the last question from the audience that I think will leave us on some optimism because I do believe the cheering is the future. <laughs> Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty. It's in the Bible. That's 3 right. Corinthians. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, some of y'all know that ain't in the Bible. Okay. <laughs> the heathen's like, is that in the Bible? No. Somebody just Google 3 Corinthians. <laughs> Dominique asked what I think is a very, very solid question for us to end on, and it's what advice do you have for up-and-coming black and other BIPOC creators starting out or transitioning into journalism? Because I'm sure there's rules in journalism that you learned 20-whatever years ago, 10, 15 years ago, that don't apply now. So how has the job changed, and what advice would you give to these people entering a field that honestly is ever-evolving, the rules are ever-changing. There isn't much that I learned at FAMU in 01 that really applies today other than the basics of just getting the information. But what advice would y'all have to newbies? I would say first, I think the basic advice from FAMU in 01 is still the advice, get the stories right, do good journalism. That I mean, that's the basics. You have to know the basics. I think mentorship is key. And I think mentorship is not just trying to get a hold of Ed Gordon or Anderson Cooper. Get a hold of the local journalists in your area. Talk to the person two years older than you who graduated from your college and now is an intern or a first, or an entry-level reporter. Some of the, my best mentors are people who know what the industry is looking for right now. So I think it, we talk about mentorship, but it doesn't have to be Oprah. It could be anybody um, that is, is <laughs> Although Oprah's not that, bad. I mean, clear. <laughs> Oprah, if you are listening, I would love for you to be my mentor. <laughs> Oprah, me too now. If you're going to call your niche, I'd like to come to the meeting. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there and let Jesus take care of it. But, <laughs> but I will say that, and I, I would say the third thing is the best advice that I got from one of my mentors, the, the great Gwen Ifill, who was so mm. real, yes. who was a black woman yes. who made history mm -hmm. in 1999 on Washington Week. Um, by becoming the first black woman to host her own nationally televised um, news program at, in Washington Week. She told me to be myself. And I, I walked up to her one day and I was very nervous. And I should tell you, I met her through the hairdresser because we're black women. And wh why, wh where else would you meet, right? <laughs> um, but I walked up to her one day and I was nervous and I couldn't remember if she knew who I was. And I said, hi, my name's Yamish, but you can call me Mish because I knew my name was always sort of this name that people got wrong. And she said, no, don't let people nickname you. 
And it, mm. it stuck with me to my core because what she was saying is go where you're going, but don't be able to recognize yourself when you get there. Don't just, mm. don't just sell everything about you. And then you look up and it's like, yeah, I'm an anchor and I got my own show, but actually I look more like Lauren London than Yamiche, even though I, you know, we don't look alike, but I don't want to, and she's a beautiful woman, but what I don't want is to look anything but like what I am. I'm not going to straighten my hair. I'm not going to make, become racially ambiguous to kind of let people sort of make me into something that I'm not. I, I want to be exactly who I am, um, and that and that's being intentional. And I was listening to a podcast with Lauren London, which is why she's on my mind, because she was just talking about the fact that life will chin check you. Life will do all sorts of stuff to you. Um, but you have to, in some ways, and she said this, and it was so powerful, and I love Lauren London. She talked about being in a spirit of celebration and meaning that when you see people getting stuff, be in a spirit of celebration for them. You see a snapshot of someone's life and you think, why don't I have my own show? Or why don't I have, why am I not a correspondent? And it's like, what will be yours will be yours. And mm-hmm. be very intentional about what you're going after, but don't lose yourself. Don't lose yourself and, 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 and be backwards and trying to figure out all these different things. Like I said, people told me I was too pretty. I was probably too big and too black for some people to, to put me Girl, on Girl, now TV. you hosting Washington Week, honey. <laughs> And I was like, okay, Mitch whatever. got two jobs. My right. mother, I mean, my, my, to me, what well, I mean, one of my best mentors is my mother, who is like, wait, no, you look like me, so don't change anything. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like seeing myself on TV. So I think for me, it's it's that. It's really, I, so I think if you have those things, which is the basics first, and then mentorship, and not losing yourself, then you'll be on your way. Let. I, my my message is a little darker, actually. Even though you said you wanted Wait, to end on a light, why are you supposed to be cheering? I, I know. <laughs> I, my message is for people who want to be journalists, specifically, um, and and specifically, I guess this is maybe even maybe geared to broadcast journalism. Um, don't do this job because you want to be on television, or you want to have a brand, or you want to elevate your profile. This job, no matter what beat you cover, whether it's entertainment or it's Washington or you cover wars, it, it is incredibly, there are journalists being killed all over the world to, who do this job. I take it very, very seriously. I know that generally on, on the, the feature pieces that I do, I'm fun and I'm bubbly and, you know, and I do love, I love everybody, it's true. But you know, I've seen some stuff um, in my years as a reporter um, around the world uh, that I'll never forget I was in Sierra Leone and um, I was getting ready to interview the president there and his uh, press secretary said, you know, you reporters, <laughs> the typewriter, we don't have typewriters anymore, but he said, your typewriter is your AK-47. And it stuck with me because that is how the people with power see what we do. I don't care if you are covering the red carpet at the Academy Awards or you're sitting and staying and taking uh, direct questions or a line of fire from the President of the United States. This is a job that carries with it an enormous responsibility. And if you can see yourself fitting in that and, and, and holding up that mantle and doing all the things that Yamish said, the truth and the accuracy, um, it, that's important, but also just taking it seriously for what it is, which is a job that you must be prepared to lose your life for in the pursuit of truth and in the pursuit of the story that you're trying to tell, especially if you're holding people uh, in power accountable. 
That is what we do at all levels, whether you're a producer, you're a production assistant, you're an anchor correspondent, Roy, what you guys do on The Daily Show, Simone, what you're about to do at MSNBC, that is what we do. And I, I do personally, I, I want people to understand that because what's happened now because of the rise of social media and the ubiquity of, of information um, and different platforms where people can elevate their brand, you start to see a little bit of that creeping where people are more focused on how they look and how they sound and how they dress and the stuff that they wear and that's cool, I'm fine with that, but, but to never let it diminish what we do because it's the only job that specifically was put into the Constitution of the United States of America, and they did that for a purpose. So mm. I don't want to... Mm. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. I'm going to build off of what Vlad yeah. said because I think it is really important as someone who is making the, the full-time transition, I often th I think about being sure that I am authentic and I tell the truth and that you do the work. And so I, I go to teleprompter prep. You know, Yamish walked back, past my office the other day and I was like, girl, I'm practicing on the computer. I'm gonna be in the studio next week. Um, so that when, on May 7th, when you turn on MSNBC at 4 p.m., you're gonna say, damn, that girl knows how to read that teleprompter. Mm, she really understood the back of that story. Or wow, she really threw the commercial so effortlessly. Or oh, she really thought about this segment. Like I'm going to do the work. And there are, there's always gonna be someone, a mentor told me this once, there's always gonna be somebody better than you, somebody smarter than you, somebody faster than you, somebody prettier than you who went to a better school who has more money. But you control if someone is able to outwork you. And there's one thing about me, you're not gonna outwork me. I get up early and I will stay up late. I will do the research myself. I will download the own packet. I will go out and call and pick up the phone and ask the questions because I wanna know. And I think that people that wanna be in the media space, I used to hate when I would do college campuses and young people would come up to me and they say, I wanna be a commentator like you. And I was like, oh no honey, I'm a, I have an expertise. I'm a, I'm a, I, I have a political expertise. That's why they pay me on television. They were paying me to commentate because I know what I'm talking about. I've worked 15 campaigns before I worked my first presidential. I've worked races all across the country from governor's races to uh, things on reservations to mayoral races to state legislative races. And I've worked three, two presidential campaigns and got a, the current president of the United States elected. Mm. Okay, I worked for the first black woman to sit the most powerful black woman, I would argue, in the world. So I have an expertise. So people who are like, oh, I want to be on TV, what is your expertise, honey? You need to get expertise, and then someone will pay you for your expertise to talk about it. But some of y'all don't got no expertise. <laughs> I'm just being honest. <laughs> some of y'all don't got an expertise. So then you hopping on, everybody got a podcast now, Roy. It ain't like this podcast. You know, everybody, yeah. they podcasting out their garages with their homeboys <laughs> and homegirls. And y'all don't got no expertise. You better get an expertise. You better do the work. Why do I want to hear from you? The thing about my show is I want to only talk to the people that know. There's a lot of people on TV that do not know. Can I just say real quick, Roy, that you know, there's nobody like Simone. There's nobody like Yamiche. Right? And, and you hear oftentimes people say, well, I want to be a little bit like Oprah with a little bit of Lester Holt thrown in there and funny like Trevor. And I always say, like, I think that when I was younger, I probably thought that way too. Because you look at people that you admire and you say, well, I wanna, I'm a little like that, but I'm also a little like that. But as I've gotten older, don't, don't think that way. You just be who you are. That is what will attract people who maybe 10 years ago would have said, oh, I don't know about you, Simone. Mm -hmm. But now look at, look at them yeah, they, <laughs> as they are. Now you'll be watching Simone. That's yes. right. You don't you want to say you want me if you have expertise because of me, 
Not because I remind you. I don't want somebody to look at me and say, oh, you kind of remind me of Lester Holt or, you know. No, I don't want you to look at me and say, he could be a younger version of Lester, although Lester and I are practically the same age. Um, you know, I don't want that. I want you to say, you know, Vlad is, I, I, when I watch Vlad, when I hear his reporting, when I see his reporting, it's uniquely his. And that's what I think is important. I would add one thing. I think people need to take care of themselves. Um, you know, I, I don't take it lightly that I think a lot of people really are walking around with PTSD. Mm, I think true. that we are a country that lost more than 800,000, nearing 900,000 people. People died of COVID, but people died of heart attacks. People killed themselves. We all watched George Floyd get, get, get strangled On to death mm. over and over again if you watched a trial. I'm an emotional person, I think. And for me, I take things into my heart. I really, when I'm telling stories or when I'm looking at people, I really, I think maybe it's a blessing or a curse. I take a little bit of that, that empathy, that, that feeling yes. with me. And that's, that is a tough place to be, especially right now. It's a heavy, heavy, heavy time, which is why I think like Lauren London was on my heart because, you know, you think about what she lost in Nipsey and you think about sort of what we're all, we've all lost in connection, in, 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 in grief, I mean, I think take care of yourself, get counseling if it's counseling, get spa days, get your nails done, do whatever. Like, yeah, you do the work, but don't, but also there's nap ministry. I love this. And there's a thing called nap ministry where literally the revolution is take a nap. And I was like, oh, you know what? I like that revolution. I, I'm okay with that. Oh, that's a nice Because I think black right people have, right. Like we talk about being black in media, black people were denied rest. So give yourself some rest. Um, between gigs, I took two months off. I never take that much time off. And I was like, now nah, I'm taking two months off. Like I need, I need the time and I needed the time. And to me, I think I, I'm not shy about the fact that I think we should all be taking care of ourselves because you can grind and you can grind and you'll get to where you're going, but you don't want to have a heart attack or kill yourself because you haven't really been able to take care of yourself or take care of the people that you love. You don't want to look up and then your mother passed away because you were, but you didn't even realize that she was sick because you were running after internships. So I, I think when I counsel my mentees, I used to say, oh, move wherever, do whatever. Yeah, you should still do that stuff. But also I tell them, if you have a job and you really love your mom and the New York Times is offering you a job in your mom's hometown, don't feel bad taking that job and not, taking, go, not running off to Ukraine and being on the biggest story right now. It's okay if you want to love your mom and work. It's, it, that's okay. So I would say that that's definitely something that I, that I, that I definitely took away and that I, that I learned the hard way in these last two years. Mm -mm. Well, that I mean, is... don't be uh, coming up to Yamish. You see her out at dinner with her <laughs> husband. You just say, hey, you walk over, you ask for yourself and you keep it moving. Don't ask her about that story she did <laughs> yesterday or, you know, what the president is talking about. Get that lady her rest. Let her eat her dinner. Don't come up to me at the nail shop. That's as good a place to end. <laughs> as any. Thank you so much to this wonderful, wonderful panel. Yamiche Alcinda, Vladimir Dutier, Simone D. Sanders, and thank you to you, the wonderful, wonderful audience of South by Southwest here in Austin, Texas. I'm Roy Wood Jr., and hopefully I've taken you beyond the scenes. All right, Roy! Yeah. Yes! Good times! Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. 
because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.